How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 231. It sounds a bit more mellow, Zeke. I like it. I haven't got a voice. Have yeah. you noticed the raspiness? I have noticed it. I haven't commented Partied on it yet. too hard on the weekend. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Did you have fun? I did. I did. I can, so, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, yeah. Excellent. It was a, it was a raspy voice. Uh, today at school, there that's for go. sure. Is it is it the same for me, Zeke? It's like it's your sexy voice. Or do, um, do people not find it sexy? I I, don't, I feel like it's the pack a day. That's my, oh yeah. yeah yeah no that's not that's not very sexy. No, it it sounds like I'm gra- like a cheese board grater. So enjoy the next hour and a half of it. I know it's um, just like the new Mac, <laughs> the cheese grater, <laughs> Mac Pro. <laughs> Other than that, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jake? That's good. Um, I'm doing okay. I, I had something extremely weird happen to me in the last week, and I figured the podcast was the perfect place to vent. Not yeah. even vent, but just, like, express my wonderment. Okay. I got an email Yep. from, I think it's TMDB. I'll just double-check it. It's not IMDB. It's TMDB. For those of you who are savvy, you may notice at the bottom of every letterbox page, it is actually, yeah, TMDB, film data from TMDB. Okay. So that's where Letterbox sources all of its information, um, obviously all its cast and crews and film running times, all of that. And I'm pretty sure pictures and posters, everything. So I've used this in the past to submit not only my own films, but like friends of people who made films and, and things that obscure things I watched that I really wanted to log. So I've just like done it on their behalf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I got an email from them the other day, and it said we're removing disconnected <laughs> from TMDB. <laughs> Is there a particular reason why? So I got into a bit of an argument with some random community person, <laughs> and eventually I gave up. So it said this may be due to the new like guidelines. I guess there's like a new guideline. Uh, content guidelines that they they have to abide by when you submit films. So it seems a lot more strict now. Um, And I went through the list of, like, reasons why it may have been kicked off, and it was like, it's actually a music video, or it's like a fan-made film, or a DVD extra, or um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, well, Disconnected isn't any of those. Like, if we want to be technical here, you know, theatrically released, you know, feature film. Mm. So that's why I replied. I said, can you please clarify why? And again, I don't know if this person is like on the payroll at TMDB. I highly doubt it. It's probably just some watchdog <laughs> online. Um, gone to a back and forth of like, oh, well, there's no proof that it's like a properly released film. So I sent them links to like the Australian Classification Board because like the film's still on there. You know, so it was like legally classified for rating. I sent them proof of like the backlog screening and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And they were just like, nope, nope, doesn't count, doesn't count, don't like it. <laughs> And their final... I just gave up. The final note was like, oh, it can't have been distributed by the same company that produced it. Okay. Which, which I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's yeah, not... I'm like looking at TMDB right now. Oh, I okay. Can't, I can't see it. Yeah, no, it's gone. Now, what's interesting is it's still on Letterboxd. Yeah, and it's so, even on still on IMDB. Yeah, well, I'm. that's a whole separate thing. IMDB. Okay. I doubt anyone's going to come after us. I mean, the our podcast is on IMDB. I think we're solidified there so it doesn't it it so tmdb right yes it doesn't like copy and paste the data over or anything like that so how does it necessarily work my guess is because it's been quite a few days and it's still on letterbox 
My guess is Letterboxd sources the information from TMDB, but once it's sourced or copied, yeah. it's there. Okay. And, like, I guess if you now delete it off TMDB, Letterboxd doesn't reflect the deletion. Yeah. I've been keeping an eye on this because I'm like, this is fascinating. And, like, you know me. I love this stuff. I love, like, logging all the films and um, submitting stuff to IMDB and TMDB and all of that stuff. So, yeah, this is just really fascinating me. But, I again, that's when I kind of gave up on the conversation. I was like, fine, whatever you win. But also, you're telling me that Netflix don't produce and also distribute their own films. Like, that's not the mark of some small, unofficial indie film. Like, mm. it's common practice. <laughs> Especially in today's day, you know what I mean? Just That whole saga blew my mind, and I needed to sort of vent on this podcast. It is quite funny. Um, you even see, like, the reach of um, some of the stuff you've, like, logged through, obviously, these databases. Right. Because... I'm like, if I Google your name, for instance, there's a bunch of other supplementary websites you would have never heard of before that still have all of the same information on them. Interesting. Like, I've never heard of Odyssey, for instance. Yeah, I don't know that one either. I do remember, this was a while ago, I had an actor um, who I had credited in one of the short films I'd done that's on TMDB and Letterboxd and all of that. Um, and I think they went on to be a teacher, and they've also legally changed their name. So they asked me if I could just change the name or, or scrub it from online. Yeah. So I was happy to do that. And yeah, through that process, I was like, it's interesting, you're right, how much of this information is just outsourced. Well, it's kind of like Podbean outsourcing this podcast to several different, yeah. I guess, um, avenues or outputs, which is really and it is really interesting because it's like you know, as as a teacher, one of the one of the things you do when you're like, oh, I've worked on films. Mm. What's the first thing all the kids do? Google your name. They, yeah, they write a name, and and obviously all the stuff that pops up is just the films we worked on, this yep. podcast. So it's not really a big issue, but yeah, it is interesting how all those things uh, sort of have that knock on effect. All these mm. websites supplement from the same source, but that is indeed quite odd. Um, I yeah. hope it didn't uh, disgruntle you too much. It yeah, it bothered me for a bit, but I, f- I think the fact that it's like hasn't been scrubbed off Letterboxd, I'm like, okay, at the end of the day, who cares? Yeah. Really, who cares? I really hope I don't deal with this if like I start submitting skin and blister to places because that, that would really drive me nuts. <laughs> no, that's, that is very fair. Well, this might be the longest we've gone without talking about a film trivia fact from the film of the week. No, I know. Jake, have you got anything from the film of the week? Come and see. I do. So there was quite a few interesting things in particular about the relationship between the director, Elem Klimov, I'm sure I'm butchering the name, uh, and then, of course, the uh, the protagonist of the film or, or his lead actor, Alexei Kravchenko. Yeah, yeah. I would say Alexei uh, Kravchenko. Yeah, I think that, that sounds correct. Yeah. Um, and what I found really interesting is that the director actually hired a hypnotist mm. to work on his actor to essentially spare him from um, all the dreadful and violent, horrible scenes that he had to perform in, which I thought was really interesting. I think there's a bit of a debate whether it worked or not, <laughs> whether he was susceptible yes. um, to the hypnotizing, but um, it, it just kind of reminds you of like how young this actor is, who obviously wouldn't have lived through the atrocities of what he's the scene he's performing in. Mm. Um, but to what lengths they went to sort of protect their cast, even if they didn't protect that cast physically. And I'm sure we'll get into that at some point. Zeke, what's your fun fact for Come and See? So, um, 
what's one curious aspect about this film is indeed its title. Um, mm. It's ambiguous and quite broad, and we can we can actually talk about it in the second half of the show. But the movie's title, at least from um, a very helpful, I guess, trivia contributor on one of these services on IMDb, mm. um, derives from the Bible's New Testament. Uh, it's chapter 6 from the book of Revelations, a.k.a. the Apocalypse of John, a.k.a. the Revelation of St. John the Divine, a.k.a. the Revelation of St. John. I don't know. There's a bunch of names for the same book. Um, and when he had opened the fourth Z, seal, we love it. I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse with his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. Um, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Mm, um, kind of sounds like that's pretty accurate as mm. to why the title was linked to that biblical. So obviously the um, following, like you said, um, floor as he um, basically moves through hell and back mm. um, and, and arguably never leaves hell after crossing the threshold. So, no, no. Um, <laughs> interesting film we're going to be talking about in the second half of the show. Before we jump into that, Jake, mm. have you caught anything in the last week? I caught a couple of things. I was actually able to get through a little bit of my unwatched Criterion collection, uh, specifically the two I got for my birthday in the last week. So I'll start with Black Girl from 1966, because mm-hmm. that has the least resonance to the film of the week we're going to be talking about. Uh, Usman Simbeam's directorial debut, and again, I'm butchering that name, I'm sure, I believe the godfather of African films uh, is sort of uh, the the title he earned, I think, in, in his late career. He actually used to be an, an author, I believe. And then I, what I really love is that he switched to film because he realized that the visual language was so much more powerful than the written word, especially, I imagine, in, in cultures that had low literacy rates. So I thought that was really interesting. He's got a really interesting... Mm history he probably deserves a film of his own right and this a lot of this was written in the little essay that comes with the criterion uh blu-ray that that comes with it but the actual film itself thought was very interesting so you know your tragic portrait of uh, an african girl she she's uh nailed this job as essentially a maid for this i think a french family uh and is excited about the prospect of actually moving to france mm. for work and she communicates exclusively through just voiceover. Yeah. So it's almost like a silent film in a lot of ways, uh, especially from her, her point of view. And we see she's got quite an artistic mind and she's excited about the idea of posing for photos on the beach. And she she has a incredible fashion sense as well for, for a maid who's eventually beaten down and, and wears the very stereotypical apron uh, get-up that you would expect. Um, so the whole film, and it's only 59 minutes, a very short film, uh, is essentially about her being beaten down by the overt racism that is surrounding her. Um, the the la- the top the tagline on the back was the uh, colonist mindset in a supposedly post-colonial world, mm. which I think is a perfect way to describe. Um, again, very overt racism in this film, but just like her being pigeonholed into this role purely because of the color of her skin, and obviously it goes back to the simplicity of the title of the film. Um, but I I thought it was very interesting dissection of that i love the black and white cinematography it reminded me a lot of eight and a half fellini just the way it was shot and 
I'm trying to figure the, the right words for it. It's, it's not surrealistic, but just it just rem- like just the look of it, particularly the black and white. Yeah. Um, especially like the 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 French architecture or the France the architecture of the buildings in France. Uh, I think I just kind of got a similar vibe from there. There was one scene that was shot in color that was deleted and I think later restored by the British Film Institute which was them driving through the streets of France over to the apartment where she was going to work. And that was all in color. And I could see where they were going with it. It was like, oh, here's like a beautiful look at France before you spend the rest of the film locked in this like ugly apartment. And that's part of her monologue is like, to me, France is this bathroom and this living room and that I just can't escape from it. Uh, So I thought all of that was really interesting and surprisingly resonant to a to uh, Jessica Bailey's film, I'm Not a Nurse, which I was a second AC on early last year. And despite the fact Jeez. that there's like a 50-year gap between that film and, and this film, uh, incredibly resonant themes and stories, um, especially especially about the African experience. Mm. Um, in, in Jessica Bailey's film, of course, a nurse who wants to be, or someone who wants to be a filmmaker but is being pigeonholed into being a nurse, and it's a very much a similar juxtaposition in this film. So... I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I did see another Criterion film, but it, it relates quite heavily to Come and See. So I'll, before I do that, I'll bounce it to you, Zeke, if you've seen anything in the last week. Nope. <laughs> no, it's, it's reporting time, and uh, obviously it was Lucinda's birthday in the last week. Yes, so both, happy birthday, Lucinda. I uh, know. Um, both have taken sort of... I went and saw Disney on Ice. Um, oh, all, very nice. Yeah, which is fun. Um, but... No, I haven't really got around to watching anything because of, uh, yep, it's just that time of term. And, yeah, that's fair um, enough. Yeah, but so I'll just throw it back to you, Jake. Oh, fair Tell enough. us about this film that's so close to the film of the week. I will give Kirsty a shout as well because it's her birthday tomorrow. So uh, both the gals having birthdays back to back. Well, three out of four. I was going to say, all you, of us are well, in June. You, it's just you. Just me. Bloody hell, November. Zeke. Why, why didn't you come out the womb earlier? I don't know. I don't know. You have to uh, talk talk with other departments on that one. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> well, the other film I caught on Criterion, and again, I watched this specifically because it's relation to Come and See, um, that uh, Black Girl was the first mm. film in that director's career. This was the last film in this respective filmmaker's career, The Ascent from 1977. Larissa Sheptico, I believe is the pronunciation there, um, who her life was cut tragically short in a car accident. I think she was only 41 when she died. And, of course, her husband went on to direct Come and See mm-hmm. several years later. And there are some striking similarities here. They're obviously both films that are focused around war, but also sort of the human condition and, and the human resilience mm. when it's pushed to its like physical and emotional uh, limits or peak, if you will. Uh, even the cinematography, I thought, was quite similar in a lot of ways like the extreme close-ups and and zooms on these terrified faces and just not as brutal i would say the the ascent it actually has a it's not an australian rating but it does have a 12 on the uh, criterion cover which i thought was interesting so i guess like a, a pg maybe an m rating which i was surprised by because even though there's not as much overt violence in this film it's very very suggestive um, so I enjoyed all of that. It does have its own identity. Again, black and white film. It kind of reminded me of Fargo in a bit in the way that it used just like pure white snow. But even these wide angles where it feels like high contrast black and white, where you can't tell, you can't find the outline between the white sky and the snowy surface. Mm. So in terms of like discombobulating you as you're watching the film and like your geographical space. So I thought that was all really interesting. 
but the thing it does that come and see doesn't really do it has a much more overt direct sort of moral debate in terms of you got these two characters who are both you know in their own version of of survival mode uh one more overtly than the other there's a scene early in the film and i just want to get the name uh sot uh Sotnikov's Sotnikov, who I guess is the protagonist, if you had to pick between these two, is someone who sort of accepts the likelihood of death in mm. this scenario quite early on. And that juxtaposes him with his partner, Ryback, who is so much more of a survivalist, like a pure, will do anything to survive, and, and to a very questionable point where that leads into betrayal and horrible acts just for the, the pure necessity of survival Marvel. in this horrible situation so there's definitely the judas and and jesus sort of comparisons there Mm. but the film goes even further with its religious analog because i'm watching this film and it's called the ascent i feel like it's training me to look out for like the physical ascent in terms of paying attention to when characters are going up or down slopes and you know the parasite the vertical storytelling yeah and i feel like the film makes so much more sense if you take that religious analog in terms of what does ascension mean for these characters, and, and is it more of a spiritual ascension than a literal ascension? And I thought that really informs the ending. It really informs so much of the events that happen throughout the film and the characters, and you know whether they stand for their own morals or do they stand for survival and hope, and where, where does hope fit between those two? Uh, I guess the pendulum swing of those two ideas, I suppose. Uh, so I thought it was a fascinating film. From that standpoint, I think it was a perfect segue to go into Come and See, which uh, sees her uh, husband take on the reins, so to speak, with more war films. <laughs> Excellent. There you go. Well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Come and See. The invasion of a village in Belarusia by German forces sends young Flora into the forest to join the wary resistant fighters against his family's wishes. There he meets a girl, Glasha, who accompanies him back to the village. Upon returning, Flora finds his family and fellow peasants massacred. What role? You know, I will say, this film's a good PSA for good skincare. Gotta, gotta look after yourself, guys. I don't think Flora has very good skin by the end of this film. No, it's... <laughs> um, I've never seen someone deteriorate so quickly. He, he he does visually age, doesn't he? Yeah. Like, and not in the... 
you know, you can take a film like this and, you know, maybe what something like what Polanski did with The Pianist, mm. um, which is, you know, obviously following a Jewish survivor through um, basically the escalating uh, tensions of of World War Two from a from a Jewish point of view. However, that's set over many years, whereas yes. this is... This feels like a day. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely got more the, the 1917 of it. Mm. It feels like one continuous period of time. Um, I would say it's over a very short period of time, a matter of even a week or, or maybe mm. even less. Um, geez, this is my first time watching this film. And how how was that? <laughs> it was depressing, wasn't it? It's yeah. just it's just deflating. It's just it is that thing because this was my second time watching it. Um, I think it was the Midsummer episode we did where I mentioned the first time I saw it, and. It doesn't get easier in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've we've seen plenty of films that depict war and, and specifically World War Two, and you know, from all sorts of different angles and allies and, and sides and everything. And I think why this film is so horrifying to I feel like most people sort of unanimously agree this is like the hardest watch. <laughs> we talk about easy watches on the show mm. quite a bit. This is this is. <laughs> quite the analog to yeah, that it's, it's not a palatable film no no um i think what makes this film so important and you know we talked about it last week this is the film that's kind of been rocking the top of the letterbox list and has been mm. up there on the imdb deep list for so long not the tmdb no not didn't, the TMDB. it didn't make the list we didn't talk about the tmdb <laughs> not after they disconnected disconnected i know you can't from do their that. database yeah um bastards <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because you then go, okay, well, what's what's the fuss really? That's like the, right. the, the, why why this film? And I think what's so important about this film, you know, we can talk about the cinematic aspects of it and its its directorial essence, the auteur mm. um, in it. But um, I think what's so important is this was probably one of the first films to really tackle the shock and horror of a war. Now. I know films like, you know, you got what Francis Ford Coppola did with Apocalypse Now coming out a couple of years before this. However, I think the grotesqueness aspect of Mm. this, I don't think we, uh, that didn't really come to the Western screen, the Western cinema screen until the mid, early mid nineties. This was, this was kind of a little bit before that. This, like a film like this, wasn't being made in the, in the states i don't think right um at least nothing that i can think of off the top of my head to this uh, grotesque confronting real and especially you know when you get to the back end of the film where they've got those sequences of archival footage mm. and, oh my um, god i completely forgot about that scene oh my god and um just like the the visual aspects mm. and um we don't really see that in western cinema until post this film because mm. i i went back and looked through every like good war film i know and they're all right. after this film so, right yeah um it makes me think that we often put it in a different and it's like if you think of something like francis ford coppola's apocalypse now yeah sure it's talking about like the the horrid nature of the vietnam war mm. for instance but 
it also does have that satirical comical aspect to it characters are far more grandiose and over sure, the top it's yeah a, you know there's there's scenes where they're doing these massive usa parades and tigers <laughs> are jumping out of nowhere and um it's definitely still a bit fantastical and, right um I guess you maybe could argue the deer hunter is the like a little bit more confronting or something like the killing fields too. Yeah, but and nothing I, tackling like the Holocaust aspect. No, and like even if we go all the way back to um, All Quiet on the Western Front, of course that's World War One, mm. and that they that film was made before World War Two even occurred. Of course, um, there's there's just something that felt more theatrical in the sense where you do have that blocking and the staging. I know a lot of people look to the new one as, like, the new, like, oh, my God, look how confronting and violent this version of the story is. But you're right. I think it's so relevant, even not just from the worldwide point of view, but in terms of where this came from. I did a little research, and there's a whole story. Again, it goes back to uh, Larisha, the the wife who did The Ascent, and her passing um, meant that he he wanted to continue the film that she was currently working on. That took till 1983. They finally got Farewell finished, which was uh, technically her last film, uh, obviously an incomplete film that, that he came in and, and mm. did. And it was during this whole period of time where he was fighting with the State Committee for Cinematography, I guess I guess the Soviet version, that were not accepting the screenplay for funding because there were just so many issues with censorship and, you know, it's too real. They called it propaganda for the aesthetics of dirtiness and naturalism. So this film got prevented from being made because it was too realistic. It was too hyper-realistic. And I think that the fact that they fought until the very last minute, until they were able to make a film like this, that it, you look at something like The Haze Code, where it's like, what killed The Haze Code? This kind of had its own version mm. of that, in a sense. And I think the only thing that was changed due to um, censorship, you mentioned the title earlier, Come and See, the original title for the film was Kill Hitler. And I think that definitely goes back into the ending montage sequence you mentioned. And I'm guessing that sequence was also a big reason of why, it, just in terms of using real archival footage in a film that's going to be played in cinemas, I imagine yeah. that is incredibly confronting. I think what makes this film so... I mean, I, I would say ahead of its time, but it, mm. it's probably become a great influence on films like the newer depiction of All Quiet on the Western Front. And, right. Um, I think, you know, especially with these massive long takes that move from a wide shot into close-ups mm. and and having these sort of um, big grandiose takes where I, I reminded me of All Quiet on the Western Front. It reminded me of 1917, yep. um, where we have this character just taking in carnage um, and holding on shots and even things like um, turning a, a scene into a photograph, basically, yeah. which, you know, Eggers does with what, with the lighthouse. Um, and this, you know, this film does twice mm. um, with contrasting effects. Um, <laughs> Just. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's oh, yeah. truly a remarkable film for how experimental it is um, mm. and unique. Like, it really feels like we are seeing an auteur. Um, and like you said, it's it's interesting, obviously, watching The Ascent coming into this film because you're able to see how much of their sort of partnership... Mm, influenced each other, almost. Um, and, you know, we've seen this with, with other uh, couples, you know, obviously a more contemporary version, something like what Gerwig and, and Bombok do mm. together. Um, and we're going to be seeing that 
in what uh, less than a month now. I know. Go Barbie. Let's go. So um, <laughs> it's it is quite interesting that this this film is it's so raw and visceral, visceral and imperfect in parts and um, surrealist in others. Mm. It, it it it's kind of like a, a genre whiplash at points. Um, and character performances are as polarizing all the time too. They go mm. from crying to laughing to. It's it's kind of maddening and dizzying. <laughs> I think maddening is a very appropriate word <laughs> for um, for this film. But that that is a big juxtaposition between this film and The Ascent. Is there are scenes in The Ascent? I mentioned the interrogation scenes earlier, where it does explore you know those the moral stakes of of Sigourney Morris versus pure survival, and those scenes are played very much how you would expect, like a very theatrical, performative dialogue between two characters. And this film is so much more ethereal in the sense that dialogue feels so you're right there's something unsettling almost about the way that that flora and glacia converse especially in those early scenes Mm. where there is like there's something just dangling there ready to crack at any moment even before all the torment falls onto them i would love to see elam klimov do a mad max film <laughs> He's just got like what I I would especially you know we did Mad Max a few weeks ago and yes. we we both didn't we thought it was okay, um, and I find it interesting that it's like I feel like if he actually made me feel crazy by the end of this film so um, maybe he should be doing some dystopian stuff but well we should I mean their performances are I feel like impeccable yeah to an extent and obviously there are so much horrible visual. Uh, elements to this film and just in terms of the actions that characters go about and they're just like the hordes of dead bodies and the the burnt bloody makeup there's all of those aspects but then i look at a scene like when they're trugging uh, trekking through is it the bog is that what they're yeah, it's like a it? bog yeah like to an island super thick mud and like that shot of just them trekking through it is so horrifying and on paper it really doesn't sound that horrifying. It's, oh, they're just kind of having it. They're just going through the mud, and it, sure, there's all this context of like where they've just come from, and like he's trying to find his family, and in denial that they're all dead and like burnt in the corner of this of this hut. But their performances, in particular, it's what sells that to me. Just like the pure um, anguish of what they're they're going through. It's mm. just it's horrifying. So I think their performance is a huge part of what makes this film so effective and so sad in a lot of ways, especially because they're both so young. And that just has that innate effect on you of like these, I mean, these people are almost half our age or at least the characters. Are. Yeah. I mean, he's meant to be 16. So that, I think that all adds to that effect where it's just so uncomfortable and so disturbing to watch. Um, let's talk a bit about the cinematography, which we've already talked a little about. Again, the, the zooms and the, I, I remember joking when I first saw it, you know, a lot of films obviously work within the 180-degree rule. This film almost exclusively works on the line. <laughs> you always get, like, those direct portrait shots of faces. Yeah. And then the reverse is just the other person's portrait headshot, yeah. essentially. Which, it, it's so funny that context and tone, you know, those are shots we see in Wes Anderson films. Mm. <laughs> but tonally... It just goes to show this is this is piercing and confronting and mm. and and at times used for like to make this almost authentic archival feeling too. Yeah, so yeah. 
um, it is amazing how the shot can have a whole different meaning based on the context. Yeah, and even just like the way it's lit. I mean, the the I guess like the lush green that's obviously like bombed and and destroyed eventually. So you get a lot of darker colors, but it's such an enticing. And I'm sure it was shot in 35. It does have that 16 mil fill where everything just feels so like luscious. Mm. Um, so I think seeing all of that deteriorate as well over time is a big part of why those shots. You're right. In a Wes Anderson film, can be sort of fun and quirky and colorful. But here have the complete opposite effect on its audience. Um, I think that goes back to what you were saying, where it feels this film feels experimental in a lot of ways because of those kinds of shots and because yeah. of the delivery of the lines and the performances. Yeah, I mean, especially when you compare it to other depictions of the horrors and war, I, mm. I think this film um, tries different things. Um, you know, like I said, if you take a perspective character that's moving through the war, like the pianist, mm. I mean, though a really good film, it's not really doing anything super experimental with the camera. It's it's more right. the, the spectacle of, of, of scope mm. in that, which makes that film stand out, whether it's... Um, from the the masses of of people moving and and such, and this film definitely still has that yes. aspect to it with massive hordes moving and and dialogue being um in, in uninterpretable, but mm. there's a lot going on and it still has those moments. But yeah, it also has those moments of quiet reflection or or just focusing on um Fleur's face. Mm. Um, and it's it's such an interesting thing, and obviously the the callback to the the plane constantly flying over, mm, which is a sort uh, of hovering them, uh, yeah. A Falk Wolf, okay. FW one eight nine, a reconna- reconnaissance aircraft. But mm. I find the I think it only appears three times. Like it's that rule of three situation, but it might be wrong there. Maybe it might be four or five times. But um, yeah, well, I definitely remember. Obviously, it's really relevant early in the film is that they see them, you know, digging up the metal scraps and weapons and things mm. like that. So I, I remember the, I think there's two shots in that opening scene, and then they definitely cut to it before that initial bombing in the forest, um, which, holy mother of God, that yeah. that shot, <laughs> just that scene, like the fact they could get away with doing something like that, and it's probably one of the most disturbingly real violence i've ever seen on film and it's not necessarily inflicted on anyone necessarily it's just trees exploding and huts exploding but it's so visceral and so real in a way that i think we're today are so used to what cgi looks like with these kinds of explosions Mm. and what and so i think comparing that to this and especially that first bombing just the way all the tree barks like snap and fly around and just the, the gravity to it it's so disturbingly real Mm. in that sequence yeah so let's talk a bit about i mean i think what makes this film so special because it does both it has i i remember calling this film a tour of atrocities because it is you're just with flora you're going from one atrocity to the other you're just seeing back to back to back horrors and i think this film serves as like that that general representation of the horrors of war but I think more specifically, and I think one of the reasons uh, that Elam Klimov really wanted to do this film was to focus on the the village burnings. Yeah. I mean, that was like a big part of like We want to hone in specifically on this because this feels like something that's underexplored in the history well, books. Well, and you see it with the one of the last things we see mm-hmm. is, a, is a Russian title card saying 639 yes. villages were burnt down. 
Yeah. So he likes it. It's, it's it's focusing on the how these small communities and it's even just understanding how many Russians died in World War Two, mm. um, which is something that is often. I don't want to say it is. It's definitely not really discussed from a Western point of view. I mean, sure. when, in high school, when we'd learn about obviously the Holocaust and mm. and the deaths of, of of eleven million Jewish people, but I mean, I think Russia lot like it was like twenty million. Wow. Like in Russia, I would have to check that death count. Russia. Yeah, but I I definitely got that sense watching of like it feels like they're really trying to make a point of of this of like here's like a very specific thing that the Nazis did that that doesn't feel as highlighted as it should you're right so 27 million holy moly so um yeah and obviously that's a mixture of military and civilians but obviously right. this is focusing explicitly on those like you said those villages of yeah and, of and resistance fighters and resist- specifically yeah. yeah so yeah not even military per se um and it's it is quite interesting because it's a different focus, but mm. obviously looking at how these communities are taken down, and like you said, it's so visceral and real. Like these are all practical effects being mm. unfolded before your eyes. There's no, um, and it it fe- you can kind of feel it from its scope. Um, the scene when the 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 barn where all of the villages were gathered is when it's burnt down and people are throwing more and more mm. explosions and, and stuff into it. it. It it feels so authentic and real. Yeah. Um, and there's the, the uncomfortable side of <clears throat> when you're sitting there watching this and just like, you know, the people that are committing this, just the, the joy and the excitement mm. and the fun, it's like a big game for them. And, and yeah, I mean, this is, it, it just takes you back to that time and you think and you know we it's we understand human nature is is abs- can be absolutely horrid so there is that level of understanding of you put yourself in that situation because i i because you can't help but put yourself in that situation of like on which side of the fence you 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 empathize with the mm. people that are in the barn you kind of think of yourself as as a victim you'd be stuck in there but then there's also and not that this film is going into that it kind of does at the end a little bit, actually, when when some of them are rounded up at the end and about to be executed, and they're saying like, "Oh, but we we were forced to do that." Yeah, yeah, you know, and the, or they all start making excuses on the spot. So it does go a little into that idea of of them protecting themselves and and this idea that oh, well, you know, we're we're just going with the flow and we're on the safe side, we're on the combatant side, so it's fine. We're safe and we're you know these people, they're the enemy. We're taking them down. Um, no, it's just it's just horrible, and like that's all going through your head as you're watching just incredible violence and again like going back to the 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 bombing in the trees that's just as comparable to the burning of of the barn yeah like even just that flamethrower that's a (laughs) that's a crazy flamethrower yeah (laughs) and it's just going off past the camera it's yeah it's truly um overwhelming at times um well it goes back to like you have a director that's concerned about the 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 his actor's state of mind by performing in these scenes. He's getting a hypnosis to try and sort of cleanse him almost. But then they're also using real bullets. <laughs> they're not using blanks. So there's like real physical danger for everyone performing in this film. Yeah. Oh god. Only in Russia. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. But it's it's true, and, and it is kind of crazy to think about because there's that just that authenticity to it, and mm. um, I'm 
there are plenty of scenes that I'm sure we'll get to in the, in the highlight scenes, but I think the film's thesis statement is in its final uh, moments mm. uh, where they've... Um, Flora has, has, has managed to survive this horrid atrocity of this village being burnt down and mm. is walking through the woods and, and sees this this woman who is who is uh, assumably fallen off a horse and been shot. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. Um, as a result of this ambush, essentially, by the resistance, um, we assume. And then, of course, he is rejoined by these these battered and beaten resistant fighters who have rounded up the remaining German soldiers, mm-hmm. um, in which one of them goes on this, this sort of defiant tirade of basically the thesis statement of, of SS and, and mm-hmm. obviously what Hitler represents. The superiority um, this, complex. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the genocidal notions. Mm. Um, and it's... Truly confronting, because obviously this is the statement that Klimov is, is he's trying to basically talk about how much hate and, and just visceral hatred mm. they have in this mission. And, and this monologue is not shying away from any ambiguity or anything like that. It's it's very binary in its perspective. Mm. Um, and it's it's so interesting because other, other f- sort of films or... Or shows, they often, you know, don't portray. They're either it's they sometimes try and show. Oh, there's Nazi sympathizers. There's trust me, but this mm. this feels very defiant in its perspective and its messaging. There is no if buts or wins. They are just right. the embodiment of evil, mm. um, which is not a bad thing because they did commit a lot of atrocities. But it, it's interesting when you can see a director's thesis statement kind of come out in a film i think through a scene there's right, quite there's no redeeming qualities about the germans in this film no and and i think that that's part of the question i mean you know when we we analyze stories in general we try and find the the ambiguity and the gray area especially for villains mm. so it is it is strange in that way especially when you have a story like this where where on earth could you possibly find the gray area for characters or for real people real figures that to do the things they do in this film mm. it's so it, it it doesn't surprise me at all that it, that it comes through especially in that last scene i think for me it's actually the scene right before that and more horror i feel like it's more horrifying because it leaves it to the imagination to an extent is the scene and we can talk a bit about um flora and glasha's relationship like earlier in the film but i really want to talk about this moment where he finds this girl that is so tarnished and so ruined in a way that is, is it even her? It's, she was almost unrecognizable in a way. Yeah. I feel like it's definitely her, but like the fact that she's gone on this complete horrible journey off screen that you're left to your imagination. What on earth course? And there's obviously the blood running down her legs mm. and just like this, the whistle that she like physically is unable to, to not blow into and, yeah, I think for me, that's when I first saw the film, that was like the most striking thing to me. It's like, oh my God, like how horrible, how more horrible could any of this get? And I think because, yeah, part of it is it's left to your imagination. Yeah, which, you know, after seeing everything that he's endured, you, mm. you, you sort of, your imagination just spirals. Yeah. Um, 
And there is, I remember thinking, I knew we were going to come back to that scene on my second watch, and I'm thinking about Amanda Lake. And part of the, like, where your mindset is just the fact that she's a woman in this world. Mm. And then when you get back to that scene, it's like there, there are very much visual implications in there of like, oh, no, that's not just like a presumption. That is very much the film telling you, here's just an idea of some of the horrible things that have happened to her in the last 30 minutes that we've been separated from her in the runtime. Um, and I, I, yeah, like I said, I think that was probably the biggest one for me in terms of like, wow, this the atrocities that are played out in this mm. story and in this world. And of course, they're based on very real accounts. I mean, there were plenty of survivors still alive in the 80s when this film was getting made, so. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's brutal. It's, it's like you said, it's that naturalism. It's the sur- naturalism and surrealism kind of meeting together and, mm. and just being incredibly confronting and, um, it definitely doesn't make this film palatable by any <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it's it's interesting. It's probably a good segue to talk about. I feel like there are moments of levity sneaking into the frame every now and then. And I think my favorite example of that is if we go back to that bombing and to to Glasser and Flora's relationship they start to develop. I love the idea of like the the bombing of like the forest and the trees and that sort of what you know, reinvigorates their trauma a trauma, and brings them together. Mm. Uh, but then the following day, they're laughing and giggling and smiling, shaking those same trees uh, to cause it to start raining. And there's that just phenomenal shot of her embracing the rain and then there's a little rainbow right to her right. Um, just those little moments of levity. levity and, of course, we lose them as the film <laughs> progresses no, on. Don't have really any by the end, do we? No. <laughs> So they've run out very early on, but I love that even a film like The Ascent, which doesn't really have any of those kinds of mm. moments that this film does, it almost understands that it requires it on some level, uh, at least a peek into what the innocence of these young children should look like uh, before being thrust into this situation. Yeah, And I would say the other one is the earlier photography scene. That's kind of fun. Yeah, well, it's 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 brought out. I mean, like they they draw that whole scene out where, you know, like the photographer is being very nitpicky about the yep. way people are standing <laughs> and sitting, and he makes a joke about Flora's suit and how he looks very sharp. And yep. um, they bring a cow in with funny making fun of Nazis. Oh, yeah. eat, eat me before the Germans do. do yeah. Yep. And um, yeah, and we almost. You know, he calls out all these different characters, and and a lot of them we don't ever see die, but we just assume they die or become yep. incredibly um, injured over the course of this film. But um, he always gives all of them characters, like mm. you know, and it's interesting because they have that amazing, and and I can't tell if it's the same effect if it's not just a, a zoom. Some of it feels like it's that dolly zoom effect sometimes with the. I, I did read they did some. I, I think there like is some in this film, so that must have been the, one of those the, examples. The Jaws dolly zooms. Yeah. I feel like they're there because there's a few times where it feels like, yeah, we're changing that focal length, but we're staying mm. at the same distance. It's um, when the anthem kicks in at the end, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's when we... Yeah, we There's do a couple of times out. on Flora's close-ups, some mid-close-ups, that yeah. it feels like they're, they're having that dolly zoom effect, that distortion thing, which makes sense. It's just purpose-driven. But Yeah. Well, you figure films like Vertigo and, and like you said, Jaws that use them very overtly and very quickly. Yeah. Like it's a three second shot and they, and they, they zoom out as far as they can. They push in as far as they can here. It's so much more slow and subtle. Mm. I think mean, that's why we had to take a double step as to whether that's what 
effect they were actually even doing in the first place. Yeah. Um, but like I said, there is levity in that one, but it's parallel, it's reflection in, in the latter stages when mm. there's a gun pointed at, at Flora's head surrounding uh, while the burning bar. I mean, it's so yeah. haunting. Yeah. It's like, and it's crazy because you look at that, that photo and that photo will exist somewhere. Mm. Like it maybe not in that form, but you know, if we look through history and there are photos of and I mean, footage. We, we see some of them at the end of this very film. Yeah. Some of those very confronting black and white photographs. Do you have anything else you'd like to add or do you want to talk about the ending? Yeah, um, I, let's talk about the ending actually because it's very... So like you said, it, you got Flora who's shooting. It's actually the only time in the film he even fires his gun off. Mm. Uh, even that scene, where, which I think is a turning point for him, is when he threatens the guy to steal... I think it's steal his horse. And he's very like combative and... and standoffish and even points the gun at him at one point but he never shoots it until the frame of Hitler mm. and of course we're seeing all this archival footage played in reverse uh, which I think we should discuss because it, it almost feels like the immediate thought is is this like him trying to undo all the damage that is done is that I, even something you can do that's for me, it's that. Yeah, I mean, that's where the naturalism and the surrealism meet again. It, mm. it for me, it, it felt very much like if someone killed Hitler, this wouldn't happen. Like that right. just feels to me what Klimov's trying to get over with that point. This this child has been brought to their breaking point, and they know that all this suffering is caused by this this one man. I mean, the fact mm. that it, it basically backtracks from 1943 to 1934 when Hitler's elected mm. as as Chancellor. Um, and it's so deliberate in it. Um, it goes through the earlier years in the war and then to even the point where, like I said, he's, he's, it's, he's, he's elected. Yeah, <laughs> to his ba- I mean, it's, it's such a powerful ending. And... Mm. Kind of feels more like what like an indie film nowadays finishes like. So it well, feels crazy. it's it's a little Black Klansman esque. Is yeah. if anyone remembers how that film ends? <laughs> um, yeah, I I I definitely see where you're coming from, and there's there's definitely a frustration there, where it's like yeah, if someone had just killed this man, all these. I mean, yeah, it ends on him as a baby with his mother. Yeah, and that's the point when when he stops you when Flora stops shooting it. But yeah, it's just so interesting because it's. That just the choice to play it all in reverse, this implication that he's trying to undo everything that's been done, and yet, like you said, it's all this one man that's caused this, and I think mm. that's something you can very easily argue. Yeah, it's it's very powerful. Yeah, in the same way that Black Klansman, without spoiling how that ends, but it has a very similar like slap in the face of reality. Yeah. So it was yeah, and I I'd forgotten how how it ended, so that was a very striking image for me to see again. And be like, oh, that's right, yeah. Crazy. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's a fair reading of the ending there. Um, I think there are plenty of highlight scenes that could be had for a film like this. So, <laughs> I think you are incredibly right with that one, Jake. What was your highlight scene? Ooh. So I already talked about the bombing in the forest. And again, just like the... And I love the visual... Sorry, the audio design there as well, where obviously um, Flora's gone deaf because of this, and he's deaf for quite a big chunk of the rest of the film, to the point where it's actually affecting the soundscape of almost all the dialogue, where it has like this tinny synth effect mm. as as Glass is like yelling at him. 
um but even just like in that moment it's just so like impactful and, and that wow factor i think it's the first time we see any sort of set piece in this film from memory but uh, other scenes like i said the the trek through the bog and this that whole sequence from her discovering the bodies mm. to her trying to to scream and shake sense into him of like your family is dead just incredibly powerful and again i think completely propelled by the performances um oh gosh yeah i i could go on i really could there's some phenomenal scenes what about what's your what's your highlight scene um i have to i mean i could easily like i said pit the end uh the ending is really powerful and even the the shot like i said the parallel photograph shots yeah um I'm going to go with a, a subtle one um, and it's it's going to go back to the um, the way that Fleur keeps seeing this, yeah, this Volkswagen um, FW-189, this yes. Renaissance aircraft in the, in the sky. And the last time we see it, we actually get to see the pilot inside it in this very small, quick sequence. Oh, right. Um, and it's this payoff. And at that point, it becomes apparent that this aircraft is is at least it feels like mostly in his head i think mm. he saw it for real the first time when he was out finding the the gun in the field the rifle so it's but, like this paranoia i that, i that think sh- it's that yeah it's, a, it's interesting it's that yeah. paranoia effect or even the the perception becomes very clear that he's almost it, his trauma is is at least generating this because it almost feels like that's where, it, once again, all the problems are away. I mean, the fact that mm. it cuts inside and it's this beautiful, attractive German officer right. eating lobster. <laughs> and I think that it's such an interesting moment mm. um, because it's basically, in that sense, that's when it proves it's surrealist. It's 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 all in his head. He thinks up there there are no problems. There are... Beautiful, right. attractive women that are eating lobster in the middle of this Renault <laughs> reconnaissance aircraft, and um, amongst this horror, and I just find it such an interesting choice. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that resonated with you. Yeah, I I don't think I thought about it as much as as much as you have there. Um, but that I I definitely see what you, you're right in terms of the merging of of surrealism and, and hyperrealism. The fact that yeah. we're stuck on the ground for so much of the film, but there's one like small reprieve. So yeah, that is really interesting. It actually reminds me of the other scene where uh, the two characters like duck because they hear like the sound of a, an aerial bomb about to land, and ends mm. up just being like a bottle, an empty bottle of booze. It's now like in the mud. Um, that little subversion of expectation, that small moment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Again, you're right. This idea of like up there, they're getting drunk and having fun and. Yeah, no, very, very interesting. But I, I always, I always love the, uh, the little small shadow Zeke. Yeah, I always right. love that. I, if not, I mean, you pick the photograph parallels. I think yeah, they're just that's that's perfect storytelling. Hanging out with the boys. Yeah, in two <laughs> different contexts. Come and see is currently available in wide release. If you're really quick, it's available. Totally good version on YouTube. See, then, I, I actually think it's going to be there for good because it's actually Moss Films' YouTube page that posted that film. And so, they're the ones that I think contributed to the Criterion release. So I think that's up there for good. So excellent. Go well, ahead, watch it on YouTube. It's enjoy. excellent. You can actually see The Ascent on YouTube too. Oh, very good. Um, yeah, I highly recommend that film as well. It is also phenomenal and very emotional. It's a good double feature, Zeke. There you go. <laughs> 
yep. <laughs> if you want to, if you don't want to, <laughs> if you don't want to go to work the next day or interact with anyone, it's yeah, a double you can, feature. You can watch Larissa's ship, 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 Keto, ship, Um, yes, also a Moss film, so uh, worth having a look at. Very good. Speaking of films and wide release, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Uh, there's not a whole lot. You got a couple of rom-coms, as per usual, on uh, Netflix. The Perfect Find and Through My Window Across the Sea. I'm not even going to bother with the log lines. You have an idea. Heterosexual Relationship Zeke. We love it. Uh, coming to Prime, we have A24's Stars at Noon from Claire Dennis and also stars Margot Qualley. Um, yeah, Margaret Qualley and Joe Alwyn. I feel like I mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, anyway, it's coming to Prime this week. It might have came to theaters early. I'm not too sure. Uh, coming to Disney Plus this week, we have World's Best, which sees a 12-year-old math genius attend high school and juggle between his academic achievements and to follow his to follow the dreams of his late father's rap career. Hmm. Yeah, seems seems very Disney-esque, but you know, it is yeah. what it is. Now, I thought this was interesting. So the first episode of Marvel's Secret Invasion is also coming to Disney Plus. It's the Nick Fury show. Yeah, I think it's following the you know the whole Skrull, the skull Skrull thing from oh, Captain Marvel. Yeah, I think it's sort of tying that up. That was a million years ago. So yeah. I don't, does anyone still care about that? But the other thing I thought was interesting. Now I don't think it's here. This must be like the American Disney Plus. They got the Incredible Hulk on there. Only very very recently that dropped. Which I think implies Disney got the rights back to the Hulk. Oh. Which is very interesting because I think Universal had that for a while. And I was reading that there was a 15-year deal on that the... Uh, oh, my God, what's his name? Ed, the Edward Norton Incredible Hulk from 2008. Mm. And, of course, it's been 15 years, I guess, to the day. It did come out in June. I remember that. Because I think I saw that and Iron Man back-to-back around my birthday. So it was definitely oh. a June release. So the timing makes up impeccably. So I think Disney might have got the rights back to the Hulk. I'll have to check that, though. Very have to cross-reference it. Exactly. Now, coming to cinemas. I mentioned Transformers Rise of the Beast last week. If it wasn't out then, it's definitely out this week. We have No Hard Feelings, which I'm actually personally excited about. Sees Jennifer Lawrence hired by a wealthy couple to date their introverted, awkward 19-year-old son before he leaves for college. This seems so inappropriate. <laughs> I'm here for it. I love it. Are you excited, Zeke? Absolutely not. I can't <laughs> stand Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, so. nah. This is gonna be funny. I have faith in it. Yeah, I. It feels odd. It does. It, I honestly, you can ask the question. It's like, what? Less than ten years ago, mm. Hunger Games. One of those is coming out in the cinema, and and oh, Jennifer Lawrence. I, mean, I think that's over been ten years catching now. Catching fire. I would reckon. Yeah, oh, the original one. Yeah, the OG was 2012. You're right, yeah. So, um, you know, this is, for her, I mean, I, I thought she was going to be like the next big thing, but mm. isn't it interesting that uh, she kind of, I wouldn't say she's fallen into obscurity, but she's definitely not who you would say is, mm. is currently peaking in, in Hollywood or at least has, has kind of moved into that alumni. I, mean, I would argue Margot Robbie has become a bigger star than she has. Yeah, um, I think. Oh, I'm. Tra- did they? Because you're right. She probably her big blowout would have been Hunger Games. I imagine. Well, that was. I mean, but you got to think at the same in that period. You know, she's in Silver Linings Playbook. She's yes. 
Passengers, which was, you know, it was a big film. It had a yeah. big budget. They she were, got they paid were, a stupid amount of money for that film. Yeah, like, she was a hot commodity, yeah. you know, up until probably, what, 2016, 17, and, mm. and then sort of just taking a back seat, you know, and you look at the same trajectory, you know, Wolf of Wall Street comes out 2014, that's Margot Robbie, but mm. she's in a, in a supplementary role, and I just think one of them has become a significantly bigger star, I guess. Like, I feel like Margot Robbie's got longevity, you know, I feel. Like I guess their heights are just hitting at different points because you got to think Margot Robbie probably had like her second breakthrough. Obviously, the first one for Wall Street, but then the second one with Suicide Squad as, as you know the, mm. the Harley Quinn. So there's that, but then that doesn't quite align. That aligns more with the Passengers release, which is a bit where you would probably assume the Jennifer Lawrence hype is dying down a little. With the, yeah. the I never actually saw it, but I know it was very meh response yeah. to that film. Um, it's just interesting, yeah. I don't because it, it or even like these other these other sort of you know leading ladies that have kind of moved into that upper echelon, mm. like Florence Pugh, for instance. Yeah, well, exactly. I think that's more like of a recent wave. Yeah, the Florence Pughs of the world, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. No, but I, I'm I I'm not joking. I am excited to see No Hard Feelings. <laughs> no hard feelings, Jake. No hard feelings. Exactly. Uh, driving Madeline. Madeline sees a sub, sub, seemingly simple taxi ride across Paris evolve into a profound meditation between a driver whose personal life is in shambles and his fair, an elderly woman whose warmth opposes his shocking past. Why did I put opposes in brackets? <laughs> Why? Why did they do that? That's interesting. And finally, Red, White and Brass is the New Zealand comedy about the true story of rugby superfans who tricked their way into the World Cup by forming a marching band despite having never played in one. That sounds fun. That does sound a bit that's, fun. That's that sounds like a Kiwi comedy. I think I think Taika like produced it. You know, uh, ah, produced by Taika Waititi. He had nothing to do with it though. Yeah. Right, that's the vibe I get from that. But that's a good logline. That, that's funny to me. Yeah, that does sound quite so, yeah. quite humorous. So yeah, there's a couple of interesting things coming out this week. Yeah, a little bit, little bit intriguing. Yeah, not like set the world on fire, but intriguing. No, I would, ra- I would much rather see no hard feelings than the Flash, just so it's out there. Yeah, well, much who, rather. Who, who really wants to see the Flash? I know you're gonna be crazy. Yeah, crazy. You're gonna be out of your mind. You must like Ezra Miller. <laughs> That's how you get cancelled. Oh, well, we're no. not watching The Flash next week. Jake! Oh, no, God, no. What are we watching? Next week in the show, Zeke. Ooh, this is exciting. We're watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Hello, I'm Howard Mirziak, founder and president of Lacuna Incorporated. Why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. In a matter of hours, our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you'd never imagined possible. This is a hoax, right? I assure you, no. Is there any risk of brain damage? It's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. Joel and Clementine begin a relationship after a train journey together. However, having had their memories clinically erased, they do not remember the tumultuous past. I I like how I had that little response... Like, ooh! Like, I only just learnt for the first time what we're doing next week. Mm. That's not true. We knew. We knew in advance, I promise. That's true. 
I did like that your uh, fake surprise was a uh, was like oh I can't I was, believe I was leaning way too much into but there's a level of performance you got to have for yeah. a podcast. You got to be authentic though. Yeah. So I needed to tell everyone no, I was not. Off- I'm lying. I'm lying to you when I yeah, you, when I when you I said broke the, you broke the fourth wall. I you did. broke the the shroud. You looked down the barrel of the camera with a horrid look. <laughs> Exactly. Just like all your favourite characters in the great family film we just discussed. Oh, goodness. I mean, uh, we might have to have our minds clinically erased after watching watching Come and See. That's true. That's true. Well, thankfully, we're watching a film about memory mm. and forgetting things. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow <laughs> Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Michael Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. Yeah, that was a real laugh. That was not a fake laugh.